0: Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with... Spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information.
1: Welcome to the Sundance TV HQ. We're excited to bring you today uh, in association with The Hollywood Reporter, our indie filmmaker panel. We have a fantastic group of filmmakers. I'm gonna bring out our moderator who's gonna come out with our panelist. Uh, She is the awards editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Please welcome Rebecca Ford.
2: Guys, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Rebecca Ford. Um, I have six extremely talented filmmakers here. I just, I don't even know how we have this much talent under one roof. Uh, But I'm going to start right here with Chiotel Ejiofor. You probably know him from his uh, very wonderful acting career, but he made his directorial debut uh, at Sundance this year with uh, the boy who harnessed the wind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Up next, uh, Nisha Ganatra, whose wonderful comedy starring Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson premiered here uh, called Late Night. And Dan Gilroy, uh, who everyone knows is a wonderful writer, writer, director, and he's here with Velvet Buzzsaw, starring Jake Dillon Hall and Renee Rousseau. Woo-hoo! Lulu Wang, whose beautiful drama, starring Aquafina, uh, called The Farewell, premiered at Sundance this year. Woo-hoo! Uh, Stephen Merchant, who's here with his film Fighting with My Family, uh, which stars a a small actor known as The Rock, you may have heard of, (laughs) and uh, Florence Pugh in a wonderful leading role. And finally, Gavin Hood, um, who you probably know from many of his films, but he's here with a new film called Official Secrets, which stars uh, Kira Knightley. So guys, I have lots of questions for everyone, and then we'll have about 10 minutes of audience questions at the end. So if you've got something to ask them, we'll have a little time right at the end for that. Um, Nisha, I do want to start with the most recent news. Your film was bought in a very <laughs> exciting deal to Amazon, Yes. Uh, right, the, the overnight uh, after its <laughs> premiere. What was that experience like for you?
3: That was—I uh, mean—it was incredible because you always hope that when you make a movie, as many people as possible will see it. But you also read about these Sundance midnight deals and the overnight bidding wars, and so to actually be like, "Oh, this is happening! This is a real thing that <laughs> goes on!" And then at five in the morning, it was like Amazon's doing it, and it was just like your text messages and your phone just started blowing up, and everything was so exciting just to know that this movie going to be seen by everybody that mm-hmm. Amazon reaches is incredible.
2: Well, congrats. Awesome. Thank, yeah. You. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I'd like to start sort of with the beginning of the process for you. Um, how do you know when you have to make a movie, when this is a story you have to tell and you've got to do it no matter what? Who's going to answer? Well,
3: (laughs) if
4: I have um, mortgage payments, (laughs) then I'll just take whatever's on offer. Uh, No, in in this instance, this was a very unusual film because it began life as a documentary that was on British TV about this real-life family of British wrestlers. Uh, I'm not a fan of wrestling. I've never followed wrestling. And and it was watched, not by me, but by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, who was in a hotel room in England and saw it. And coming from a wrestling family, sort of saw this obscure little documentary and thought we could make this into a film. And so it's a very unusual kind of origin story, because although it has Dwayne, who sort of, you know, is this giant movie star, it's this small kind of film for film developed from a documentary about this family of wrestlers from Norwich. And, um, and I sat down expecting to sort of laugh and sneer at these people. And um, I was just utterly charmed and kind of moved by their story and their dreams and the fact that they talk about wrestling as, as uh, something which has kind of changed their lives in the same way that alcoholics can talk about God. You know, they talk about wrestling. <laughs> and, um, and these two kids who go off and try and make it in the wide world of WWE, which for wrestlers is the, you know, the Hollywood of wrestling. And, um, and only one of them got signed, the, the sister, and the brother got left behind. And um, so it had a lot of pathos and drama and sadness, but humor as well, because it's a sort of, Odd little subject, and um, and it just somewhere on the line, it just really got into my DNA, and that was why I felt like it was worth pursuing.
2: Mm-hmm. tell how about you? Why was this? Th- why did you have to make this movie?
5: Yeah, I think there was, you know, um, the film *Boy, Harness the Wind* is, um, you know, William Kamkwamba's incredible story of building a wind turbine to help his community get out of a famine, and um, I was, <clears throat> you know, uh, moved and inspired by the book and. Uh, as I was reading the book, I was just trying to think, actually, as you were talking and uh, uh, asking a question, if I could pinpoint the exact moment in the book, really, where I had, where I sort of moved beyond the kind of wider idea of thinking that this is a great and inspirational story to feeling that I really had to make it. And I think it's that moment of personal connection, that if you have that moment of really deep personal connection, or where you start to really reevaluate your own life and your own experience through the experiences of somebody else. And, uh, and for me, that was, I think, in the book when William describes at 13 having been thrown out of school because his family couldn't afford the fees and, uh, and there's no free education in Malawi uh, above sort of seven or eight years old. Um, and him trying to figure out how he could sneak into class. And so wondering, you know, and actually then doing, actuating this kind of um, if he could get in by recess and then maybe the teachers that would be looking out for, the ki- for a kid who hadn't, whose parents hadn't paid would be doing something else and he could sneak into the science class and so on. Um, and I sort of thought about what I was like at 13 mm-hmm. and what my relationship to sneaking into school, sneaking into mm-hmm. a science class was like and how completely inconceivable that concept <laughs> was for me. And I really started to consider the nature of that privilege and the nature of uh, of that understanding in a fuller sense, and I guess that's what inspired me, and I just thought, well, I really actually wanna bring that story, this story, this kid's ideas of the world to a, to a larger audience, if I can.
2: Mm-hmm. And Dan, you uh, write scripts that you then don't direct. How did you decide you, you wanted to direct and write Velvet Buzzsaw?
1: As a writer, I'm, you're looking for an idea that's like a documentary or something you see. You're just looking for something. For me as a writer, I'm looking for something that, that I know my voice it was something that I will respond to. Uh, I, right now, when I direct something that I've written, I'm doing it to entertain people, certainly, but I'm also looking for thematic relevance and ideas that are important to me. So when this idea came into my, my, my world, and I fell in love with it, and I thought this is a great entertaining film, and it's also something that I'll be able to use as a vehicle to transmit ideas. So the biggest thing now for me is I'm not going to really write or direct anything unless it's transmitting an idea or an ethos or a theme that I feel is relevant, because this media is so powerful for change, and, and not just change, but to, to share your point of view, with the, and it's just such an opportunity to share your point of view with the world that ideas now, I define them when I want to work on them as, oh, that's, I can say something that. And then actually the hard thing for me, the editing process on this movie was cutting out all these great lines of dialogue that had all these ideas in them. they like ornaments on it, and it's like you watch the movie and you go like, you don't need that message, you don't need that message. Just like, it's getting through. I just, wanted, I just want so many ideas to come through and just share people with what you're thinking. That's really, so the idea is to find them by the vi- potential vehicle to transmit an idea.
2: Lulu, how about for you? This is a very personal movie for you. What made you say, I have to tell this story?
6: yeah, I mean, even as I was going through the process when I got the news that my grandmother was ill and I had to go back and say goodbye, but it was a wedding, and I'm not allowed to tell her <laughs> that it's uh, we're all that why we're actually there. Uh, you know, in the process, I was actually in post on my first film, so I wasn't necessarily thinking, okay, this is a film right away. But even in just trying to grapple with the uh, ethics of it. and is, is Am I crazy? Are they crazy? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was calling up American friends. I was talking to my family and um, just trying to make sense of it all. Uh, so through that process, I was like, wait, I, I think I have something to say here. Like, maybe it's all of it. Like, maybe everybody's crazy and <laughs> everybody's not crazy. Um, and, you know, I actually discovered that, like, because I had to not express my emotions when I went back to China for this wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how to, I was gonna be able to do this without just breaking into tears as soon as I saw my grandma. So I went to this like uh, media store and bought a little camcorder. And I thought, actually, you know, I'll hide behind my work. This is what I've always done is turn uh, situations and things into stories and so if I do this then maybe it'll help me control my feelings if I like am hiding behind a camera through this lens and so even through that process of like dealing with the actual situation I already started to get a sense that there was a story here
1: it sounds amazing <laughs> I haven't seen it. I'm so excited to see this movie I'm excited to see all these movies it's like I know what I'm doing when I leave here <laughs>
2: Uh, Nisha, tell me about coming on board. I mean, you know, Mindy Kaling obviously wrote this script. Yeah. How did you fe- find your your? How did you make the decision that I want to be the one that tells this story?
3: I mean, there were the once uh, the words Emma Thompson were mentioned, then you're just sort of in. I think no matter what, <laughs> but I think with this script, it was it was beautiful because I think a lot of people forgot or didn't know that Emma started in comedy and that she started as a stand-up comedian. She was in an improv troupe in college, and she's just come along and such a brilliant actress that she's played all these um, period piece dramas and all these dramatic roles, but the chance to sort of direct Emma Thompson in a comedy was just uh, something I could not say no to, and Mindy captured, um, we have so many, as Indian American women working in comedy, we have so many similar experiences and she just poignantly captured them in a really funny script that um, is my favorite kind of movie, where if you just want to go to a movie and laugh and be entertained and listen to a good story that kind of um, leaves you feeling uplifted, then that's what this movie is. But also, if you want to look a little deeper, it does have something to say and is quite political and um, interesting, too. So movies that work on both levels like that really are the, the joy for me. And this script really captured that beautifully. So I wanted to absolutely direct it.
2: And Gavin, your film is based on a true story. Yeah. It feels very timely. Uh, why did you feel like you wanted to make this movie? Well, I'm
7: glad I'm going last because I'm picking up on what everybody <laughs> said. Um, it is, to Dan and, and everybody, to and tell all you guys, it, it's about looking at, at a world in a way that you haven't before. The beauty of cinema mm-hmm. and what we're lucky enough to do is, you know, we all live our our particular life, but the beauty of cinema is seeing life through someone else's eyes and and looking for themes and ideas and ways of being that challenge us. So in this particular case, um, this is based on a true story um, that took place right before the invasion of Iraq in 2003. It's the story of a British spy, a very junior British spy, working at GCHQ, which is the government communications headquarters, which is a very uncool word for the British version of the NSA. Somehow NSA, National Security Agency, just feels... Punchier than government communications
4: headquarters. Hey, look, we're very classy people, all right? We don't, we're not going for these show-off terms. Exactly.
7: <laughs> and, 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 you know, very innocuous. What would government communications headquarters do? Write notes to one another. Well, actually, they spy and they do what the NSA does. They eavesdrop on your private conversations, they gather up information on your cell phones and your computers, and, um, and they hack you um, if they need to. So, but what was interesting about this uh, was that Catherine Gunn, whose whose story we're telling, was this young spy, and there's been so much information out there about how we got into the Iraq war from a kind of macro level, and what really fascinated me about this story was going into that story through the eyes of a very, almost ordinary person like us. Not quite, because she was a spy, But, um, but she was 28, and she found herself in this situation where she came across a particular memo that was sent to GCHQ by the NSA, and it basically asked the GCHQ to help spy on the private communications of UN Security Council delegates, particularly the non-permanent members on the UN Security Council, whose vote would be critical in swaying um, the Council to voting for a legal UN-sanctioned invasion of Iraq. And had Blair and Bush got that, (coughs) that resolution... Um, all of the WMD issues, for those of you, a lot of young people here, maybe they're too young to even remember the Iraq war. You remember the Iraq war, somehow, yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the whole premise of going to the Iraq was Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and, um, and but if you could have got, there are two ways you can, you can go to war, and I won't be too long on this, but there are two ways you can go to war, legally, is one, the United Nations Security Council votes collectively that we have to go in and we have to solve this problem, which is what happened in Kosovo, right? If you get that, you don't really have to prove anything else, because we as the United Nations agree that something needs to be done. The, uh, the other way that you go to war legally is self-defense. Well, if you can't get a UN resolution to go to war, which Bush and Blair couldn't, you need to say, hey, we're under attack. There are weapons of mass destruction that threaten us directly. If we don't stop it, the world's going to get a hell in a handbasket. Um, so they really wanted this resolution, and... I shouldn't go on too long. This is a story about a young woman who felt that spying and trying to essentially blackmail smaller nations into voting for this war was just a bridge too far for her, even though she worked as a spy. And so she leaked this memo. And, um, and to be honest, why did I want to do it? At first, I didn't. I thought, oh, my God, this is so complicated. There's so much research. And my wonderful producer, Jed Doherty, who may or may not be out here today, um, just kept going at me and saying, Gavin, you can do this. I'm, I'm an ex-lawyer by background. And it's a long way. And I thought I'd left it behind. And, you know, it comes back. <laughs> so, um, so eventually, you know, I started reading and reading and reading. And the more I read, the more fascinated I became. And eventually, like everyone else, you just feel, I need to, I need to tell the story. And now you're in. Mm-hmm. And then you struggle to get the money. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, let's talk about getting the money because <clears throat> we're talking about mostly independent film here. Um, how, how hard do you feel like as a director you are in charge of fu- that fight? Or do you lean on producers to help you? Have you had a frustrating experience where you couldn't, just couldn't get the movie off the ground or it took a lot longer than you thought?
1: Who's money. ever been frustrated at getting money? money? <laughs> Does that
2: happen? <laughs>
5: Let's take a
1: vote.
2: Maybe not when you're Dan Gilroy. i no, I'm <laughs> kidding.
1: I've had my troubles getting money. I have a for, I have a formula, which I'll share. Uh, my formula is you get a script. In my case, I write it. Then you get somebody to do a budget, and you get the budget as low as possible. And then if you're lucky enough, you get the agencies, and you find out what elements, like little of what they're worth, because everybody has a number, there's like a hidden number somewhere, and if you can get that element or elements, and they're more valuable than your budget, there are a lot of people who are gonna be interested in making your film. There's, there's a lot of money sloshing around out there mm-hmm. in the independent world, and Netflix obviously has joined the fray, but, but if, you can, if you can get a script that you like, get the commitment of someone like Chiwetel, and, and you have a director, and your budget is a number that's credible, and the actor is worth more than the budget, people will want, people are going to be very, because it's a piece of business for them. For us, it's like, art. right, we're talking about the themes, and they're like, there, there's people who make a living, that this is assembly, and have, okay, check that off, because they'll take the worst case scenario. They'll take the scenario, if it completely fails, we know we've pre-sold it in 80 territories, and are, we'll have a thin margin of profit of $800,000. So for them, they're covered. But that's sort of, that's how I've approached the three movies that I've made. Yeah. That sort of process. But did
2: everyone write down the formula? <laughs> <laughs> but I
1: can't do all the
3: movies.
5: I'm <laughs> 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 try. i will try.
3: <laughs> I think oh, for, come I on. Mean, for us, we were definitely... The thing about the sale, too, was that we were seen as a risky movie because the lead was, uh, you know, God forbid, a woman over 50 and then a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And it female-driven story, female-centric movie. It was very... Um, <clears throat> it was a risk. And so that I think for it to be the record breaking sale at Sundance was just a big validation that there are female directors. Yeah,
4: Yeah, yeah.
6: yeah, and I think like, I love that formula. Wish I could do it. You can't do that formula. Yeah, like on my film, I was like, okay, so this is a story. It's gonna be a hundred percent Asian cast, whether it's Asian or Asian American. Uh, I want it all authentic to the language and the accent. So 60, 70% Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's find a star who's yeah. worth uh, you know, right. know what I mean? It was we and this off. was the part. <laughs> Yeah, this was before we knew we were gonna cast Aquafina. It was actually <laughs> before she had done Crazy Ridge Asians. Right. It was before Crazy Ridge Asians. Yeah. So uh, my have formula you is- film for
3: your formula? So what is
1: your formula? <laughs> yes. My formula
6: is uh, c- come up with an idea, uh, go to This American Life, uh, <laughs> write and uh, narrate it, uh, have it air on This American Life, and then all the producers will start calling two days later. So simple, simple. so, so simple. easy. So easy.
1: This film business is so simple.
6: <laughs> what? No, but in all seriousness, yeah. I think you do what you can. I mean, for other yeah. indie filmmakers, Women, people of color, like whatever your stories are. I think what I discovered through this process is that there's not just one way to do it. Like if you have a story that you're passionate about, find any kind of medium, find a way to get your voice out there, and then if it resonates, it'll spread.
3: But that's what we have to do. uh, That typical formula for us, when you put in our like X's and Y's, will add up to two dollars because they'll say, "Oh, that woman's not worth anything. That person of color has no record. You know, it just doesn't." It doesn't work for the kinds of movies. It doesn't work for everything, yeah.
4: <laughs>
1: but I'll tell you, on Nightcrawler, I was ready to make. We made it ultimately for around seven or eight. I was ready to make it for like one or two. Yeah. I, I, there is a budget number mm-hmm. that, if you're willing to drop to that budget number, <laughs> other yeah. options start opening up exponentially. The lower you go, and then the question yeah. is, how do I make the damn movie for 750000 yeah. dollars? And sometimes you, you can, can totally pull it off.
3: Damien's, to, so Damien's first so. movie,
1: Whiplash, he made for 3 1 off yeah. a short film. and I mean, you can do it, it's, it's, it's a man, but you just think the economics get smaller. But, but yeah.
4: I, Sorry. Well, I'll just say, but, but, but you know, uh, our movie was originated by Dwayne, who, you know, by some metric is regarded as one of the biggest movie stars yes. in the world. Literally. He, he was going to feature, although. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
6: He well, you say that, but he's six
4: foot, uh, he's six foot five, I'm six foot seven, so uh.
3: he's,
4: he, let's be honest, he's very intimidated by me. It's,
3: uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing.
4: Uh, I tend to sit a lot when I'm around him. But, um, uh. but you'd assume that you'd go along and you say, well, okay, Dwayne's not going to be the lead of this movie, you know, although he was in real life involved with this girl, Paige's real-life wrestling story but he's going to feature and he's going to have his fingerprints on it. And, and, and that was still, it did, still didn't solve everything. Wow. And we, we went to film four and we had to, you know, they had a sort of amount that they felt they could give and we had to get money elsewhere. And so it, it, I don't think, you know, um, it, it still seems to me that it's a combination of someone like Dwayne in, in the right kind of running, jumping, shooting film. But, you know, you put him in something else and, and suddenly people are a little nervous or how are right, we going to yeah. sell this? So I, I don't know if it's ever painful. And getting,
5: and, and getting good collaborators with that as well. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. That's also part of the the process of having a good producing team. Because that's the thing, it's just accumulating those yeses, isn't it? Right. <laughs> and, and, and that sort of starts to snowball and that kind of moves. I think I was very, being part of the process with Boy Harness the Wind was definitely, even though I had me. Yes. <laughs> you <know, it>, uh, <laughs> numbers working very well. The,
4: uh, were I was you, like, okay. you, were you tough to get? For your okay. <laughs> 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 were there some availability
5: issues? You wouldn't share. read it. it just yeah. sat there for a long a time. A couple of readouts. You know. um, what is this? Though? But, the, uh, but is you know, it's still a, it's such, it's, it's still a mm. process. And, and finding people who, who share your vision and who are going to go to bat for you and who are going to try and, uh, and, and join you in that search for the financing is... Uh, is, is, I mean, is vital. it's
7: vital. I think there right. really is no one way to do it. Um, and I've done... them. I mean, this film was political in nature. You know, God forbid you should examine anything political in Hollywood unless you've somehow landed every major star that you can. So we had to do it that way around. We, we had a budget, and then we... Had, well... Okay, just forget your budget. Nobody's going to do this unless, you know, you get the yeses The Chewy Tells Well, when Keira Knightley signed on, that was a really good yes. You'd think that would do it, right? You'd think that would do it. Oh, no, no, no. Well, that's great. That's great. Who else? So we ended up... Then we got, a, then we got Matt Smith, who's fantastic, from, from the... Absolutely wonderful actor, amazing. We thought we were done. No, 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 no. You get us one more. Get us one more. Well, eventually, the one more, we had, like... This third act, amazing cameo part of this lawyer called Ben Emerson. Who are we gonna go to? Let's try Ray Fines. He's never gonna say yes, you know. It's, it's a, it's, mm. He said yes. So I think it really is for actors, and there's someone who can answer this better than me, but in my experience with actors, it's about the material. So if you're not winning on the elements yeah. that are now, you gotta say, this script has really gotta be good, because what does an actor want? Something good. And, you know, and maybe a paycheck. But um, I've done it the other way around as well. My film Totsi many years ago was done in a foreign language with subtitles with not a movie star in sight. The lead had never been in a film before. But we had to make it for the right price. We had to make it for under $3 million. And we had to find people who just loved the story and, again, the script and said, we believe in this and we'll do it. But there's no way we would have got, you know, even $6 million for that movie. So I think you've, you've also got to be realistic about what your project is and go in as Dan says at the right price. But try, okay. if you can find a great actor that also has name value, of course that's,
1: yeah. that's hugely helpful.
2: Or Chiwetel.
7: Or, to,
1: or Chiwetel. <laughs> yeah. He's so, booked up. He's not reading anymore. He's booked up with <laughs> you. Uh,
2: so let's talk about the actors. Do you enjoy the casting process? Do you, Dan, write for an actor like Jake or... Um, how do you know that you have found the right actor for a role?
1: Uh, in Velvet Buzzsaw, I wrote the part for Jake and I wrote the part for Renee. Uh, I, I didn't know the other parts. I love, I'm love. i married to an actress for 25 years. I love working with actors. I think this is a highly collaborative medium. Mm-hmm. One of the things I enjoy most is sitting down with somebody when you cast them and, like, i got to be honest, I, however good a writer I am or not, when you sit down to a good actor, if they're a good actor, within a few days or a week, they know more about the character than you do. Maybe not more than the story, but they certainly know more about the character. And I am all ears when an actor starts talking about what they think is going on. And I love actors that challenge and question, and, because it's only going to get better. If they're good actors, and you, hopefully you've cast them, it's only going to get better. Yeah. And uh, some directors just don't like work. Some directors don't like where They're scared of actors. Actors are scary. They ask really brutal questions. Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they wait till the day you're shooting. Because it says so here on the. You've this never page. done that. But, <laughs> but, but you should, I'm sure you have. But, but no, embrace actors. They have, if they're good actors, embrace them. They're, they're invaluable. And, uh, and I got a great cast. I mean, I, Malkovich and Tony Collette and all these great, and Ashton, it's incredible. I, I love actors, man, good actors.
2: Would tell Stephen, as actors, um, how did that sort of influence your style as a director?
5: Well, I think it's, the, it's actually the, the same thing Dan's saying. It's just that sense of really, I think that, you, you, that embracing the process and embracing the collaborative spirit is a crucial part of, um, of I think, being a, d- a director and being an actor as well. You know, that, that, um, that understanding that individuals bring so much to the table, you know, um, and that actors can actually really... Influence from the inside, the nature of a story with dynamics that are just kind of inconceivable, you know, to somebody, you know, somebody outside of that experience, you know. So, uh, and exactly in that way, actors are sort of forced to be sort of, um, you know, script editors sometimes, and really work through all the things that they have done before and what has worked for them, and then bringing that to your project, and so sort of negotiating that, you know, the, the hardest experiences to go through as an actor. Uh, with directors who want to block that dynamic because they're kind of absolutely focused on whatever they believe is the, is the correct way, correct, you know, way to, uh, to approach something. And, um, and that can be very challenging and very difficult and very rarely is it successful, you know. So as a director, you know, what I wanted to do was absolutely open it up to the actors to bring all of their thoughts, feelings, expressions, to have takes that I didn't, you know, absolutely didn't say anything about it, you know, what, what do you feel? How do you feel it goes? And if there was something specific to try and move or change or uh, then sort of discuss that and think about it and negotiate it, but, uh, but give people the absolute space to, to create, you know, that seems to me.
4: Well, we, we, we had a very tricky central role to cast because as I said, it's based on this real life woman who's a working class, woman uh, who at the time that she went off to America to train as a, as a wrestler for the WWE, coming from this, this Norwich family, you know, she was uh, 18 or 19 at the time. She uh, ultimately became a big star there. So you needed someone who could both be this working class girl, but who had the charisma, not only to carry the movie, but also that you would believe could become a star in this world that she's in. And she needed to wrestle on top. And so it was a really tough, thing to cast, and I must have seen sort of 60-plus, wow. you know, young British actresses in either in person or on tape, and it was just hard to find that combination, and, and uh, we ended up with this wonderful actress called Florence Pugh, who has been here, I believe, with, with Lady Macbeth, and Lady Macbeth was a terrific film, but it didn't tell me that she could do this part, and it, it's no, no, there was no question about her talent, it's just, you know, it, but is she right for this one, and so, you know, I worked with her a lot and some of the other actors, and, until they could convince me that, that this was the right deal. But like you were saying, you know, when it's weird when you are an actor, you, know, you hear those stories about, well, what's my motivation? Why should I cross the room? And, and you sort of think, oh, just actors being you know, idiots. But actually, <laughs> weirdly, sometimes when you are in the scene, it's only then that something occurs to you that doesn't feel right or it feels weird or you don't understand it and you can't move forward because you're stuck in that. And so like you say, you, you need to trust that the actor's not... Doing this because they're being a diva or because of ego its, it's just because something's not ringing true for them. And if you don't listen to that, I—I I don't know, you know, I don't know where
7: you are. Yeah, from. I agree. Yeah, I'm. I, I want to go back on something I was saying about about Kira and Matt and Rafe and 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 um, especially when you've written yourself, uh, Dan. I don't know if you'll agree with this, but. There's some, there is a fear that you're going, to get, you're going to get rejected. Actors often come to auditions and think they're auditioning for you. The truth is you also feel like your stuff's being auditioned by them. Is my stuff working? Does it work? And, and you want to hear those. I actually love the audition casting process because I get to test my stuff before I'm actually shooting on multiple people. Don't tell them that. You tell you didn't. But it's great <laughs> when actors come in the room and you're casting because you're going, is this scene going to work the way I've written it? Don't be afraid of that process because the other thing about being challenged, the flip side of having your producers, your financiers say to you, "No, get me, get me someone better for this role and your instincts are, please, can I, I don't want to go through that trial or that rejection anymore. I have Kira, can we just shoot this? We'll get... No, we want more. Now, in a way, then you go, oh, what you realize is, is my stuff good enough? You know, is it good enough to attract really good actors? Mm-hmm. And if my stuff when I'm sending it out, is being rejected. Oh, so-and-so passed, so-and-so passed. You know, there's a tendency to say, well, fuck them, you know. Um, but actually, that's not very wise because maybe it's getting rejected because it's not good enough. And, uh, and so as a writer and a director, you want to go back and look at that material because the competition is massive. What's the number? 700 films made last year did 13... Point four billion billion. It's a record, except that half of that $13 billion, or at least a third of it, was 10 Marvel movies. So that leaves 690 movies competing for the other balance, of which most don't get a release. This is not a gentle sport. This is the Olympics, man. And um, maybe I'm overstating it, but getting tested in pre-production and during casting and going back is, is exhausting, but actually worth it, I think.
3: Yeah. I want to hear about Aquafina and how you
6: cast her. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. gonna say it's. I mean, that's it's 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 terrifying, because you don't know how it's all gonna work out until right. like you're actually there. We had an ensemble cast, so we have Aquafina, who's known for comedy, and when we cast her, she hadn't even done Crazy Rich or uh, uh, Oceans Eight yet. And uh, so when um, you know the producer said, you know, have you heard of Aquafina? And I was like, my vag? <laughs> <laughs> they were like. I know it's unconventional, what do you think? Like, she loves this group, she'd love to meet with you. And I was like, oh, okay, just didn't think, okay, yeah, all right, my badge, yeah, okay. Uh, So, I mean, my brother introduced her music to me, that's how I knew of her, was like through YouTube and stuff like that. And then of course she's like playing a version of me. And so it made me, I was like, uh, uh, Danny, my producer, was like, how do you think, do you, am I, okay, Uh, like, you know, this is the person (laughs) that you're choosing to represent (laughs) me. So <laughs> then uh, Aquafi and I met up, and she told me about how personal um, the story was for her because she was raised by her Chinese grandmother, mm-hmm. and then she sent in her audition tape. And I just knew that the raw connection she had to the story was going to bring so much depth, and we couldn't greenlight the film even without having uh, the main character. You know, but then you go to China, and you're ca- we're casting people from like, local Chinese actors to play the grandma, uh, we cast this soap opera star from China. We, you know, For the uncle, we, we cast this like, dramatic actor, uh, if Tai Ma, who's you know, been in Arrival, Meditation, everything. Rush Hour uh, is the father. We have an Australian Chinese woman to play the mother. Uh, and then I cast my real great aunt to play herself in the movie, non-actor. <laughs> she actually went through the experience herself. And I always thought, you know, if she was just around on set, she would bring like a grounding to all of this, and hopefully tie all of it in. And initially, I thought maybe she'll play grandma, and that wasn't good because, yeah, that wasn't good. (laughs) Because she was like, "What does my sister do?" And you know, it was very like an imitation. And then I just said, "What if she plays herself?" And we had a long conversation. I said, "Put yourself back in the moment when you found out the news, and you have to lie to your, you have to decide: Do I lie to my sister, or do I not?" I felt bad, like all the producers were there, and we were like, we're putting her through this really traumatic revisiting of this moment, of, And she, but she felt, she was like, it's like therapy, you know? And she wow. did it, and it was so raw, and uh, it was like, done. So but then you know, you don't see all of these people together until you're actually on set. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to start with these big ensemble pieces cuz we had very limited shooting schedule as you know with indie films, and then you have 13 people in a tiny apartment sitting around a round table. How do you do this? Do, do you cover it? You don't have time, no. and um, and then and then also, how is everyone? What's the chemistry between the group, uh, it, it, between Grandma Billy, between you know? And then as an ensemble, because the ensemble themselves is a character. The family is a main character in the movie, so it, it's it's magic. I think so much of it is is faith, and you just kind of, up until two weeks before we started shooting, we didn't have Grandma or little Nai Nai, uh, the sister, the great aunt cast, and so you're just like, this, 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 alright, let's go, boom, and you have no idea what you end up with, and yeah, so... I th-
5: were,
4: were you nervous about the fact that what if your aunt couldn't You had to fire her or something. Because I put my dad in something once, and we gave him lines, and on the day he was hopeless, and I had to, I I ended up taking them away (laughs) from him. And because it was such a low budget thing, my agent ended up doing the scene instead of my dad. (laughs) Did he charge you ten percent? (laughs) I think he did.
6: No, she kept saying that. She was like, you know, if I'm terrible, just tell me, just fire me. I was like, we've like been through the parks of the entire city every morning scouting cute old like Chinese ladies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, like you're the cutest. And
0: <laughs>
6: <laughs> we gotta make it work. And she was like, no, I'm gonna ruin your movie. And she's acting her, you know, her sister in the movie is a really famous Chinese actress that she's like watched for yeah, years, right. and wow. so she was like, I can't, my fat face is gonna ruin your movie. That's what she would always say, and we were like, no, you were adorable. <laughs> Even when we told her we were at Sundance, she was like, I'm just relieved I didn't ruin the movie. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she's, she's amazing, That's but true. a little bit afraid, but I knew she could do it. <laughs> so,
2: uh, guys, I do wanna ask sort of a broader industry question. Obviously, we've seen this business changing pretty rapidly the last couple of years with things like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and now Apple kind of coming into the business. A couple of these films are being released uh, through Netflix. What's sort of your view on how a movie is released, how you would want your movie to reach audiences these Ooh. days? Are you open to everything? Are there still preferred ways you'd want your movie to go?
5: Well, I think for, for The Boy Who Us the Wind, which is with Netflix, which has been very exciting and a great process for us, you know, the, um, uh, what it's made me think about is this opportunity to slightly curate the ideas of how you uh, distribute films and, uh, and that there's not a sort of, there's a kind of, there are options on the table and there's not a <clears throat> sort of one-size-fits-all kind of um, model. And so, um, so it seems exciting to me. You know, I, I wanted to make a film that was very specific and very authentic and about Malawi Uh, And a lot of the film is in Chichua, which is the language of Malawi, and, um, you know, and it's all, you know, set there, and it's very, you know, uh, detailed in that way. Um, But I kind of wanted a lot of people to see it, you know, (laughs) and uh, and in the early parts of the process, you know, when I was starting to write that, it didn't seem, it felt like that was a difficult thing to achieve. You know, I started writing it in 2009, and you kind of... Um, you know And just working through the time, doing other things, coming back to it, and seeing the landscape slightly change, and getting to this point whereby there is an opportunity to have it you know to, for some people to see it in a limited way in cinemas, but also to actually get the kind of reach and the eyeballs on it that, uh, that were just was completely impossible um, a, um, a few years ago and would have been extremely difficult within the model and the established theatrical models of distribution uh, recently, so that 's been exciting to me I think that that idea of how we can curate that experience for the audiences and how we can then push sort of different kinds of material out there and uh, and have different kinds of conversation is something that I personally am very excited about and looking forward to working with and seeing how these conversations can be productively handled. You know, so it's not a sort of us and them sort of paradigm, but you know, I think that these things work together very well. I love the idea, for example, that with something like Roma, that people were going to see it in the cinema because they were more used to the idea of subtitles because they had been watching things like Narcos on Netflix, you know, recently. So that sort of way that it actually can these things can sort of evolve and inform each other, I think, is a kind of useful way of moving forward.
7: Yeah, I, th- I think we're as lucky with Netflix because it's, of course, old school, and I'm a bit old school. You know, want to see my film on a big screen, and I do. There's nothing more beautiful than sitting collectively with an audience and seeing a big. There's something about the intelligence of an audience that. Goes up when they're all together, which is a bit more nerve wracking, but they really focus. But having said that, it's a bit like sort of whinging about film versus digital. You've got to stop. I mean, the truth is, digital now is amazing, digital cameras, and it's democratizing film in a way that it was never possible when, when we had film. And I think Netflix and what Chirtel's saying is doing the same thing. I mean, you know. 12 years ago, when I made this tiny little indie film, also all subtitled in Sotsital, um, we were just hoping we'd get a release in South Africa, which is where I grew up, hopefully. And we were very lucky that it traveled the world because of festivals like this. Um, that, but the festivals like this were really the, way, the only way that you could get your film out in the world. Now, with Netflix and Amazon and these sort of companies, a smaller film can find a huge audience, whereas... Mm. Even when Tsotzi was released in America, it was released on two screens in New York and one in L.A. Well, that's not really my target audience. Um, and I'm very glad that it then picked up and went on to many more screens and, and, and got a life and showed all over the country. But it, it, it still doesn't reach the audience that a Netflix can. And then the other thing, of course, is we're all buying these big TV screens. So it's not so bad. The sound's better. You know, when I was growing up, it was TV, and who wants your stuff on 4x3? So I think... Don't, don't be afraid of it. Look for the place where you can best get your film out. And, um, and, of course, it's wonderfully satisfying to have it on the big screen, but it's certainly not the only place.
3: I think we, we get the best of both worlds with Amazon because they guaranteed a theatre release. So we get to... Oh, wow. You know, that's the dream is you want to see it in a theatre with an audience, especially comedies. I grew up watching comedies in movie theatres with audiences. There's nothing like laughing altogether. And mm. so we get to do that. And then we also get to reach the whole world with Amazon streaming. So I think that's just... <laughs> The best of both worlds.
6: Yeah, Yeah, and I think above, like, more than just the theatrical, digital, like, all of that, like, yes, you want as many people to see it as possible. It's more than just platform, it's about, you know, who can handle the film, who understands the film. Who's able to present it to the world? Because so much of it is about optics, right? Like, The Farewell, you know, you have an all-Asian cast. There's subtitles. People are speaking Chinese. But then you have Aquafina, who's this very big American star. So, you know, when you're in this, like, strange territory and they call you specialty, like, how do you present it so that you bridge that gap? People aren't seeing it as a foreign film, that they're able to see it as an American film. Because it is an American film, even though there's all of this other language, because it's from the perspective of... An American, and it may not be the type of American people immediately think of you know like is a, a lead or as a, a cast in general, but it is an American perspective, and in fact, you know when people were talking about this film for the Chinese market, like I, I can't speak to that because I'm not Chinese, and you know when we took we were talking to people about the film in China we were like, so then they keep the secret and they don't tell grandma and they're like, uh-huh so Where's the drama? Where's the dr- We're the like, strange. no, but they don't tell her, and she's dying, and they're like, and you don't do that, America? <laughs> like you guys are crazy. You would just tell her, you know? And so for them, they're like, this isn't dramatic enough. This is what everybody does. Um, That's so, yeah. like when
3: my family in India thought. Monsoon wedding was a documentary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't like, <and then> like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my dad told like, a story. My dad was <laughs> like, this is so everyday. Why is this interesting? Yeah. That's what he literally
2: said. Um, I'm curious, while we've been here, there's been a movement happening um, with a lot of actors uh, agreeing to participate in something called the 4% Challenge, which is they'll agree to work with a female filmmaker in the next 18 months. Um, you know, as we know, female filmmakers still make up only 4% of the top films <coughs> in the U.S. Um, I'm curious what you all think about that initiative and sort of what can be done to really you know, make, give more opportunities for female filmmakers.
3: I mean, I think it's essential that they make these initiatives and promises and just shine a light on it because if they don't, it doesn't really draw attention and the statistics, every year people seem to start to talk about female filmmakers and then every year the statistics actually go down about the number of working directors that are women behind the camera and we all know now that who's behind the camera matters and it matters what perspective you're being given, it matters how the stories are being portrayed, how women's stories, particularly if if they're objectified or not, it absolutely changes by whether a woman is behind the camera or not. And so I think those initiatives can only help.
6: Yeah, I think it's uh, so urgent, and I also hope that there's one day where people aren't having to agree to work, you know, yeah. where it's like, <laughs> hell yeah, I guess we are do so it. freaking excited, <laughs> yeah. and, it, you know, it isn't pushed on you by an initiative, but at this moment in time, we need it because yeah. it's not happening.
4: I would uh, say... Uh, Just thinking about um, you know sort of women in the lead roles as well because I uh, was always aware that there was a disparity between you know how many uh, protagonists are are leading protagonists in the movie are are women and I always knew there was a disparity between men and women but I didn't realize how pronounced it was and I read a few articles where it was you know they were dramatically stating you know how low it was you know as low as kind of thirty percent in some in some Hollywood you know in like two thousand and sixteen. And I, bizarrely, I had made a list of my favorite 500 films because I got time on my hands. And, uh, and I thought, surely, you know, this is a list which is not controversial. If you were to look at it, you'd see many of the kind of standard canonized movie classics in there across. And it dates back, the earliest in the list is about 1920, and it covers, it's a huge film nerd uh, list. And, and, I, and I sort of thought to myself, I bet there's at least 50% that are female roles. And I totted it up. And to talk, bit, if you were thinking of it singly as a female protagonist, it was um, fifty in the five hundred films. It's ten percent, and I was really shocked by my own list. And again, it's not a list where you'd look at that and think it's it's entirely Jean-Claude Van Damme films. It's it's a very broad spectrum. But and I was shocked by myself. And I and I talked to my girlfriend about it, and she was saying, well, yeah, you never notice the absence because yes. you see a white yes. middle-class male on screen all the time. You just it, the absence of something doesn't occur to you because. There's nothing absent for exactly. you. Exactly.
6: You know? I mean, the, even for me, though. Like, I took a film class in college, and it wasn't until I got in the industry and I started thinking back on it, I, in this film class, uh, you know, of like an entire semester, not one female director uh, was presented as somebody to, to to watch, whose work I should watch, and, yeah. and and I just didn't think about it. I was like, oh yeah, Tarantino, um, yeah, what do you I thought about. This it. I is was what the everyone loves. Student
3: that was like, why is there not one woman on this list? Because when you present to me a list and you say these are the directors you should study in film school, these are the directors who are worth watching, I was like, so what you're telling me is there's not one woman who's worth studying, and that's the message you're giving. And I was the annoying student that was always. I wish that, that out. I
6: thought more. I think I was just so like enamored. I never thought of even yeah. filmmaking. I just discovered filmmaking for myself. Right. That I there was a pressure of being like. Oh my God! I gotta catch up. You know, I didn't. I were, my, my family immigrated here when I was six, and so I wasn't exposed to all these art films. So I just felt like I had to catch up and yeah. learn all the things that these like <laughs> my film teacher and all Watch these roll. brilliant,
3: yeah. <laughs> huh? Watch Blow Up. I was. Yeah. like, we are showing Blow Up one more time. We'll walk <laughs> yeah, out of blow the, up. Way, <laughs> the yeah. way. Yeah, I was like, why is this okay?
2: <laughs> exactly. <Christ>. Um, <laughs> I think we're gonna open it up for a few minutes of questions. <clears throat> Who's got? I think we have some microphones here. Okay, if you just raise your hand right here on the skirt. Uh, Micro.
0: Yeah, thanks. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I actually just had a question because I'm a director myself, and my experience is I've done two short films and a couple music videos, but I'm wondering when it comes to doing a feature, like because I know it just... Because um, when I I've crewed before in features, it's exhausting, but it's
1: another thing to be a director for a feature. And I was wondering, like, what was your guys's process um, adapting to that and um, not being exhausted or just <laughs> like having that balance? Yeah, How you will you, be exhausted. Always, exhausted. S- always <laughs>
3: exhausting. There's <laughs> <laughs> not, not being coffee, coffee. It's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I think it's always it's exhausting, right? Because you are you're the director, you're a part of every single department. It is incredibly collaborative. That is the joy of it, you collaborate with these incredible artists. But it also means that you're working with the best person who's doing the best in their category. They are the best at what they do and you're having to talk to them at that level on every department. Um, I was filming late night. I was five months pregnant. It was (laughs) exhausting in any case. And it was just, and Mindy Kaling was producing and writing and starring and she had a three month old and so I always feel like if you can do that, we shot the whole movie in 25 days, then, um, you know, it's, you just embrace the exhaustion and you just keep going. Because even when you're not, you just are, um, it stays exhausting all the way through to the end until I think we're exhausted right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, a big part of it is preparation. Yeah. You, I can't emphasize enough how important pre-production is. Yeah. Take, it, it's a, take it the longest possible runway you can get. and. If you, if you do that, your first day should sort of be your easiest day. It should sort of be, you should schedule it to be your easiest day anyway, just out of, out of sensibility. But, but preparation, man, mm-hmm. just like prepare. Get the questions answered. Don't, don't, don't autocratically jam. It's like, we're going we're gonna to keep going. Here we go. With problems, we're not going to just keep marching. No, don't do that. It's like, like get everything locked down. Take your time with it. I mean, as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Well, I- preparation.
4: But I, for whatever reason, you know, I ended up only having about six was six weeks prep. And it right. was... That's, that's
1: and, very short. And
4: it was, re- it was a nightmare, it exactly. And we were shooting on two sides of the Atlantic. And it was a, it was a nightmare. And I knew <laughs> yeah. it was gonna be. And it's a point at which you think, should I just walk away from this? Mm-hmm. And then you could be, but unfortunately you've, you just, you're psyched up and the train is moving and you feel like you need to go. But, but yes, it's, and so now you're just playing catch up all yeah. the time mm-hmm. and you're just always, and I, I heard film directing being described as, it's like you're being chased down a hill by a boulder. <laughs> And you're just trying to stay, you know, from out, you're just trying to outrun it, right? Indiana Jones-style, before it crushes you. And that's it's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> and you have to be match fit. You just have to, you, know, get, yeah, you <laughs> know... There's no
7: getting away from the exhaustion, and Dan and everyone saying that preparation is everything. <clears throat> I have a slightly different theory, which I wish was my own, but it was actually told to me by Richard Fleischer, who's passed away, when I was in a directing class at UCLA. And I've done it on every one of my films. So, uh, not from me, but from Richard. He said, uh, um, make sure... And Dan's going to disagree with me, I'm sure. He said, make sure you start your first day with the hardest possible steps.
1: I would disagree with that. I mean, I'll tell
7: yeah, you why. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I knew he would. would so so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make Richard's case, do which that. I do believe is mine. Do and that. I'll tell you why. We I'll tell all you disagree. why. Here's the caveats <laughs> yeah. that come with it. Here's the caveats that come with it. And I've done it on all my films. Firstly, don't let that be a Monday, steal the last day or two of prep. Because everybody better be ready by then anyway. And guess what? We're not going to prep and come back after the weekend on Monday. So what I like to do is you must make sure that it's a really hard scene. Not done yet. Um, Make sure you've got the weekend to recover. And you shoot the Thursday or the Friday of prep. And make sure that it's a doable day. So often I'll take a really tough scene. And I'll do it over two days of the last two days of prep. Because you must not go into overtime. This is not me. This is Richard. He said to me. But I want to see every light out of the truck. I want to see every prop on the floor. I want to see every single grip piece of equipment. So that if you screwed up in your department, you got the weekend to figure it out. And on Monday morning, everybody's up to speed and we're making a
1: movie. So that's... Because that conventional... I business. say start with inserts. Yeah. <laughs> so you choose how you want to do it. A hand I the door. I can't <laughs> Yeah, a foot on a gas pedal. <laughs> <laughs> couple days of that, and you don't even show
7: up yeah. for those, right? Then yeah. the weekend. Yeah, and then yeah. the weekend. I like it. Yeah. But my is difficulty be, is that everybody that thinks like it's good an if easy if you're doing
3: movie. They go, holy crap, a <laughs> yes. That's a formula for your, like your crew hating you. No, they don't. Like, <laughs> you know why? I'll tell you why. I tell
7: you why it works for me, and it obviously my crew definitely doesn't hate me. <laughs> but because you make the day, and usually you finish early. And and so, for example, if you've got two days to shoot what in week four is a son of a bitch of a scene with 150 extras and you're exhausted, you do that in the last week of prep. You give yourself the two days, all the extras are out, all the AD department's working, and you know you're going to make it. And you're calm as hell because you're not tired. My experience of doing that wrong way around, which I'm sure nobody's going to agree with me, my (laughs) way of doing it that wrong way around is the crew goes holy shit, we did it. They love it. They're making a movie. They're up to speed. And on Monday, everything is a piece of cake because all of a sudden you're doing, you know, a scene with two actors for f- five minutes. And it was, it's just easy. And as I say, when, Rich, when Fleischer told me, told us that in the class, it's one of those UCLA classes you take. And I thought, I'm going it. And on my first movie, I did it. And I've always tried to do it on all my movies. But it isn't about making your crew work 14 hours for the day. or Then you're dead. Then they do hate you, and you can't lose your crew. You and I'll say something, I'm working
1: 14-hour days, yeah. your crew should not work more than 12 hours.
7: Exactly right, days. exactly right.
1: I one time asked a crew yeah. member, like, what's, what's, what's <laughs> the long day for you guys, 12 hours? Yeah. 14 hours is too long, 13 hours is too long, because they're staying an extra hour as well. A 12-hour day is what... And I, by the way, I like
7: a 10-hour day. French hours, You guys man. did
6: not make a movie in China. Yeah, not happening. <laughs> 10 hours. <laughs>
1: you know. No, but you know
6: what?
7: accidents,
1: people you. get tired. They do. People it get gets killed. It's unconstructed, exactly. No, no, people no, get no. maimed. It's, it's dangerous uh, to work these hours. Absolutely,
6: yeah. but you know, we shot... It's an American co- yeah. co- and China co-production, and I was told we're doing six-day weeks... Mm-hmm. And the crew loved it. They were like six-day weeks. We're used to seven-day weeks. <laughs> so they, and but
7: even six-day weeks, the crew gets tired. Oh, I agree with dan I think them. it's the like burning out hard. But
6: you know, but you know, like the norm. Uh, uh, somebody who was on the Chinese crew said that the longest that they'd work, pretty average, pretty normal for like a typical director, uh, set seventy-two hours in a row.
7: No, that's crazy. In yeah.
6: a row. Wow. And like, so, but you know, we had uh, American producers and they were like, yeah, we're not doing that. And they were so grateful and it makes a huge, huge, huge difference. But you know, we had to adapt in a certain way when you're shooting outside of the country because just everything, that's their system, you know? And there's, I, I won't go into all the details, but like they don't go home. When you, even if they live in the city, you have to give them a car, uh, a transportation, and a hotel room because that's the system. They, when they sign on to a movie, the entire crew, they like the idea that it's a family and that you're all together, and they don't see their family. And so they want to shoot six-day weeks because it means they can also get it done faster and then go home.
7: But whatever you do, you don't want to lose your crew. Yeah, I mean, I want to be crew. clear that you're absolutely right. That's, you, your crew is so important. You you'll never get it back. You'll never Once get it back. Once you lose your crew,
1: yeah, it's you'll never fine. get it back. And you need them them, like you need air.
7: Exactly right. Exactly
0: right. Who's got another
2: question here? Uh, In the blue hat? Hi. Uh, There's a mic. Yes,
0: thanks. Uh, What's kind of the process when choosing your DP? Could you guys just uh, maybe talk about that process a little bit?
2: Of selecting or working? Just like selecting a
0: DP for a certain film or just going about that.
2: How do you find the right DP for a
3: I mean, for me, it was I worked with um, a DP that I had worked with that we went to film school together, and it was more because I knew for this one, we had a comedy. I didn't want it lit like a, a traditional Hollywood comedy. I wanted it to look like a Mike Nichols movie and a classic sort of comedy that I grew up watching. And um, I knew we had 25 days, so I needed somebody who we could run really fast through with. There are some DPs, if you don't have a, a tight relationship, there's so much trust between the two of you that some of them won't shoot something because they're afraid it'll go into the movie. And so we had that sort of relationship where I could say, I promise I won't use this. Don't take the time to light back there. I'm only gonna use this part of the shot. And because of that, we could accomplish a lot more in the amount of time that we were sort of on the same page before we even started. And we could complete each other's sentences. It was like, you do that, I'll do this. And truly to trust the director of photography to direct the photography while I was we had a huge ensemble cast and I was fixing so many things and working with so many actors that it was great to just know we have the same ideas in mind. We set the shots all ahead of time. We shot list everything and then we could just hit the ground running. So for me, it was like, how are they lighting? What's their personality? How well do we work together? And um, Are they going to be your team mate on set? Because there are some who will, the producers will go to them and start pressuring them and ADs and Who's the person that's going to come to you and say, "I'm your, I'm your collaborator, I'm your teammate. We are together. I'm not going to turn on you. You're not going to turn on me." And that was really important.
4: Yeah, you need you need an ally absolutely. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're really in trouble. I was lucky that I'd worked with this guy Remy Attesfassarin, who I'd worked with before, who did this film again. And and but we had that interpersonal language. And so again, when you've not got a lot of time, lot of, not not like a lot of prep time. You, just, you need to have an interpersonal language that can kind of speed things through because the last thing you want is to be clashing with them or arguing in front of everybody yeah, about where you're going to put that yeah. camera or why you're shooting yeah. that bit or you don't need it or, or worse still, if they decide that they should be directing. Yes. You know, and <laughs> and um, so I was very lucky that he was such a collaborator. But uh, yeah, but also, of course, you know, it's, it's dependent on if they're available and again, if you can afford them. And so there's all kinds of other restrictions. It's not like you, know, you can just pull whoever you want from a hat. You know, they
6: And I think you have to trust your intuition, too, because I was looking at a lot of DPs. Um, You know, all the agencies were sending me all of these reels, and I had the same exact questions, like, how do I look at this, and how do I make a decision? And I just said to myself, you know, do I feel something? I'm gonna watch all of these and give myself the time and space to determine if I feel something. And ultimately, um, you know, after looking at 20, 30 reels and meetings, and um, this woman came across Uh, through my production designer, and um, the DP's name is Ana Franquesa Solano. And I looked at her reel, and I I immediately felt something. It's almost like friendships, you know, when you're at a party Mm -hmm. or, like, when you're dating. Mm -hmm. I just looked at her work and just felt the empathy in her camera, in her lighting. And I said, who is this? And she was non-union. She had no uh, substantial resumes. And I was getting people who had all of these films at festivals and da-da-da. And everyone was pressuring me, saying... Pick one of these; they're great. Like, look at their resumes. And I said, I want this woman, Anna. And they were like, but she's non-union. How do we do that? And, and I fought for her. And um, and you know, it was hard for me to do that because there was so much pressure. Like, we got to pick someone fast. Mm-hmm. And these big agencies are sending you big names. So, and why? If they're good enough for this, why are they not good enough for you? And I really just stuck to my intuition. And I'm so grateful because it was an incredible collaboration.
2: Guys, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for coming.